I am Duncan MacLeod, born 400 years ago in the highlands of Scotland. I am immortal, and I am not alone. For centuries we have waited for the time of the gathering, when the stroke of a sword and the fall of a head will release the power of the quickening. In the end, there can be only one. Welcome into Let's Watch Highlander. This is Let's Watch Highlander Season 1, Episode 14. The episode this week was For Evil's Sake. And here to guide you through this journey, we have myself, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. And with me, as always, is Audie. How you doing, Audie? Doing all right, man. How are you? Oh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. So, For Evil's Sake, open up the episode. There's a collection. There's three different mimes in and around Paris. And we get kind of a cool little sequence where they're doing mime things they're doing acrobatics magic tricks whatever in three different locations when suddenly things kind of take a turn and it looks like they're going to do something rather nefarious but it's all a ruse right it's a it's it's a gun with a little bang flag coming out of it or a prop stage knife and then the ruse turns out to be a ruse itself and they kill three people in paris basically all around the same time is what it we're led to believe Duncan happens to be near one of the attacks, runs over to help, and the mime gets away on his motorcycle. When the police show up to question him, they're asking Duncan what happened and if he could identify the man. He claims that he could, even with the mime makeup. And the detective, Inspector Lebrun, doesn't trust Duncan. You can tell right away he just has he has no love for Duncan. Duncan and cops, man. Yeah, something about it. Duncan <laughs> overhears uh, Lebrun and his partner, Sol, talking about the attacks and the fact that there was another attack that happened at the same time with another man uh, dressed as an acrobat is what they say uh, mime duncan is reminded of something that happened in the past we get our first flashback dun, dun, dun. we had two flashbacks in the episode it turns out that duncan knows this pattern this was a an immortal assassin by the name of kyler uh kyler who is i, I think we can safely say probably the world's greatest assassin also happens to have a penchant for absinthe mm-hmm. that becomes sort of his Achilles heel later. Uh, we'll get into, but Duncan, upon learning about Kyler decides, uh, basically decides that he needs to take Kyler out because Kyler's just a bad dude. Starts to track him down through, uh, specialty liquor stores, finds where he is, confronts him, but Kyler threatens to kill a bunch of children, uh, in broad daylight so Duncan can't do anything about it. But Kyler, knowing that Duncan is onto him and won't give up, sets up a meeting uh, and they fight. Duncan wins. There's your episode. Uh, it's a it's a straightforward story. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty good one. Uh, we have a couple yes. of special guests, uh, Kyler and uh, Inspector Lebrun that we'll talk about, plus one other that I want to bring up because it was someone that I noticed. Um, mm-hmm. So, without further ado, let's get into our special guests for this episode. Do you know how many mortals I've killed over the years? I'm sure you do. I've kept a book. 2,760. Now, I don't just think I'm bragging, but uh, I'm the greatest assassin in all of history. So, our first special guest this week is Peter Howitt, who played Kyler. Uh, Kyler mm-hmm. is an assassin. Straight up. That's what he is. Yep. Peter Howitt, uh, just to give a little background on him, and I found this interesting, 
uh, is a director as well as an actor. Um, yeah. He, he's been acting for a little while. It looks like his last credit was 2009. However, he directed some things I didn't realize that he had done. Yeah. Um, Antitrust with uh, Rachel Lee Cook and Ryan Phillippe and uh, Tim Robbins. Johnny mm-hmm. English was his. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sliding Doors. Um, what was the other one that I saw? Laws of Attraction he did. And uh, some some episodes of The Fixer, uh, a movie called Scorched Earth from a couple of years ago I hadn't heard of. But he's done a little bit of mm-hmm. directing, done some acting. Um, you know, not great movies, but certainly fine stuff. Right. As Kyler, I liked him a lot. Yeah. He was he was an evil immortal without being like mustache twirling evil, right? Right. And I think that's that's really what worked for him. Cuz he's yeah. he's straight up just a bad guy. Mm-hmm. However, he's compelling at the same time. Right. So that's I That's right. He felt he feels like uh the non-immortal type mercenary characters we see in a lot of action movies that are like, I'm good at killing. It's what I do. So I'm just going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. No, he, he even brings up like, you know, that's what he's good at. That's, mm-hmm. that's what he exactly. knows. It's all he's really been ever the best at. That scene with the two of them uh, in the church was great because it was kind yeah. of, it wasn't our first time we've, we've had the whole meet on holy ground to talk thing used. But it was right. really well done. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, a couple I, of chums just chatting. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and that's where Kyler, you get to learn a little bit more about Kyler because he's like, look, I, I have a decent singing voice, but it was never that great. My tumbling wasn't the best. There was always somebody faster. There was always somebody better except for killing. And he even has that line where he talks about like he's proud of it. He, he has a book of every mortal that he's killed yeah. all whatever 2,700 of them or something like that. Just a silly, crazy number, but he's, he's just so he's deliciously evil again, without being like cartoon character villain, mm-hmm. which is interesting because of the villains that we've had. And especially the kind of straight up evil immortals, he's got the most ridiculous look to him with the white face paint and dressing up like a mime, right doing the magic tricks, drinking the absinthe, you would think he would be the craziest of them all, but he's really not, and that's what I like about him. Yeah, he's definitely the one of the most calculating that we've seen. Yes. Also, I like that he's a good physical match for Duncan. Again, he's the same height, a little bit taller, but the, the mm-hmm. acrobat background makes him very agile. So the stunt work was great. The, the fights between him, there's a couple of them with him and Duncan, I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. uh, especially the first one, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Right. Um, but overall, I liked Peter Howitt in this. Uh, he's not a fully, I wouldn't say he's a fully fleshed out character, but he doesn't need to be. He's there right. to be a foil for Duncan, and he's perfect for that. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I'll say, this is one of those episodes that I remember that I think was on repeat a lot. Because as soon as it came up and I started seeing stuff, I was like, oh, the mimes. And as soon as we saw his little uh, place with all the... Uh, uh, statues, uh, mannequins and stuff. I was like, oh, I remember this one. Like, yeah. I remember that room and that fight and everything. So, Ooh, what a creepy place. Also, was it yeah. me or did some of those actually look like they were cast from Peter Howitt's face? I don't know what it if was. If they weren't cast, they were drawn on to look like his face. I think on purpose, I'm sure, you know, you could write 
write the story behind that, that he purposely did that so whoever comes for him, he could easily hide in there a lot better. But it definitely, yeah, there was one or two that they specifically had the camera on that was like, you drew that, you sharpied some eyebrows and some lips on there specifically mm-hmm. to look like him. Yeah. Which is a nice touch because it's something that you don't, mm-hmm. you might not notice the first time you see this, but right. then you see his face and you see, especially his face in the white, in the white makeup. And it's like, oh yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, our other kind of quote unquote special guest, he's not really, cause he's going to recur for a couple of episodes, but inspector Lebrun is played by yep. Hugh Laforestier. I, I'm sure that's wrong, but, uh, Hugh Laforester, <laughs> he, um, Inspector LeBrun shows up for a couple of episodes here in the first season in France. Yeah. It's another in a long line of cops that doesn't trust Duncan. They None of them do. Mm-hmm. He does have history with Duncan, though, which is kind of cool. That Yeah. Uh, that is explained in the second flashback, and that's the reason why he doesn't trust Duncan, and I get it. Right. Overall, I like him. Like, of the cops we've had, except for um, the dad from, uh, oh, what was his name? Um, Sergeant Bennett. Right, uh, Sergeant Bennett, I liked, and Powell, I started to like. Mm-hmm. I would put LeBron with those two in terms of like, yeah, that upper echelon of the cop characters that are in this because he doesn't trust Duncan, but he kind of begrudgingly does by the end of it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, he at least knows that Duncan can get stuff done. Right. So. I like that. Now, he even mentions calling Bennett in the States and mm-hmm. having some kind of conversation with him. I'm like, what was that conversation like? Because I <laughs> would have been great. That. Yeah, that would have been a great conversation to know about. Because um, this is the point where Bennett was more or less on Duncan's side, even though we never saw much more of him. You yeah. Know? So, like, how, I just would have liked to heard that. Yeah, I mean, overall, like I say, he's a good character. He's written well. Um, the only thing I would say about him outside of that was you. it was very clearly that they dubbed his voice. Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm pretty sure it was Hugh Laforestier or Laforester. I'm, go, I'm just going to call it mm-hmm. Laforestier. I'm pretty sure it was him doing the dubbing, but it was very, very obviously dubbed. Him very and obvious. his partner. Him and Detective yeah. Saul. Um, yeah, again, I wonder if it's one of those things where they just couldn't get the audio to work right when they got to France and were doing stuff there. Although I noticed it was only those two. Everyone else in the episode, the dubbing, whatever they did dub didn't seem as obvious. But for some reason, mm-hmm. those two, maybe it was just when they were on set, their English, they just couldn't quite grasp it. And so they were like, you know what, we'll we'll redub. Yeah, we'll maybe. have you do your, your lines over. Detective Soul, for all I know, could have been somebody completely different doing his voice, but <laughs> just the two yeah. of them just so obviously dubbed. But right. hey, whatever. You know, they're in France. It's fine. It didn't sure. take away from things. So. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that kind of dates the episode, and we mm-hmm. we can tell it a lot more now. Yeah. So, but it's not a big deal. It's not like we lose anything from the dubbing. True. Also, LeBron's got a hell of a high kick. I was going to say, like, <laughs> that was, I'd forgotten about that. I mean, he's got his arm in the sling, but he kicks uh-huh. him in the forehead from straight on. Like, mm, got I'm some pretty, of them French martial arts going on there, I huh, guess. LeBron? I'm pretty sure I pulled a hamstring watching that. Mm-hmm. So, um, the other actor I wanted to mention, it's not a special guest, but it was a fun little cameo. The man working in the liquor store. Did you recognize him? I did. And I yeah. saw 
Yep. He is Vernon Dobchev. He was the butler that insults Indiana Jones in Last Crusade and calls him Mickey Mouse <laughs> or says, if that's, if you're a Scottish Lord, then I'm Mickey Mouse. And right. I love that. And it's a fun little character to, to have in this episode too, is working in that liquor store. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know, it's, it's nice to have a character actor of, even if you didn't know him from Indiana Jones, like he's good in this small role. Right. It's something about the way like that, that look he gives Kyler when he gives him his bottle and it's like, Oh, did your friend like his bottle? Like there's something about the look that he gives him that just, I don't know. It tickles mm-hmm. me. So. Yeah. The one other person I recognized too was, uh, Michael Valetti who played Baron de Shields. Oh, okay. I've seen him in stuff before. Um, not a big deal. Apparently he was in this movie called the international and it really makes me want to go back and watch that movie. Cause it was a cool movie. Was that one, the one with, uh, Jackie Chan? No. no, it's uh, Clive Owen. Oh, Clive Owen, okay. Interpol working with, who is it? Um, he works with Naomi Watts. They're tracking down That's the, one. the okay. international bank that is doing nefarious stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't really recognize him, but I haven't seen that movie. So, um, so that might be something I have to check out. But he was fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a very small role. Oh, but- yeah. You know, he did kick I off. just recognized him. I saw his IMDb. I was like, he looks super familiar. So there's <laughs> some stuff, but. And he got to yeah. kick off our, or be the, the main focus of our, our first of two flashbacks in this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame was completed in 1345. How do you know? I suppose you were there. Well, no, actually it was a little bit before my time. So we had two flashbacks in this episode. Uh, our first mm-hmm. one took place, uh, I'm not sure what era exactly it is. It's France, probably, I'm guessing, late 19th century from the powdered wigs sure. and the face paint and all that. But right. Dun- Duncan is um, Duncan is the protector for Baron de Shields. Who we don't get right. his name ever, but that's, that's who he's credited as. That's the Michael Valletti mm-hmm. character. And it's Duncan's first meeting with Kyler. He's at the Baron's mm-hmm. Chateau. Uh, Kyler is there as entertainment. And this is where we learn that Kyler drinks absinthe and that he does magic. And it's the first kill we see him do. Right. Or I guess we also establish him using two little helper people. Yep. Yeah, that's also true. Uh, but hell of an assassin to be able to take out his target in literally a room full of people. Right. Who are all focused on him at the time. Mm-hmm. It was kind of, you know, they hand wave it. They don't really give any explanation for how exactly he got away, but it's a really right. cool scene. Mm-hmm. Because you get, you, get, uh, you get the tingle as Duncan and Kyler right. catch each other, and then they have mm-hmm. their, their standard, sort of standard operating procedure for immortals to kind of face off and puff their chests out a little bit. And <laughs> give each other the evil eye. Yep, exactly. Uh, but then you get you get a fun little magic trick, and then he he goads the uh, Baron into coming up onto the you know sort of mm-hmm. quote unquote on stage with him against right. Duncan's advice. Yeah, who's going to touch me in my house? Exactly. Um, as well. soon as he said that, you knew like, oh, this guy's oh, making yeah. it out of this scene. Um, but yeah, I, as a, a nice little self contained uh, self contained little flashback that gave us a good amount of backstory uh efficiently mm-hmm. 
Now, our second flashback gives us more, and I, I actually think is one of the better flashbacks we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one's chock full of stuff. Yeah. So let's see. We get our establishment of how LeBron knows Duncan. Mm-hmm. We get the last meeting between Duncan and Kyler pr- uh, pre- prior to the episode. Right. We get uh, get a actually really nice little fight between the two of them to start it off. Mm-hmm. And with this fight establishing that apparently they don't just magically have them their swords on them all the time because Duncan is not able to have a sword. Yeah, which was nice. I mean, he's not wearing a long coat, so he has no real way to hide mm-hmm. it. And, right. you know, he has to improvise. He grabs metal bars or whatever, and they have their mm-hmm. fight. It also helps to establish Kyler as a physical threat for Duncan. Whether or not he has his sword, Kyler's good. Good right. at what he does mm-hmm. and gives Duncan a run for his money. This is where Duncan meets LeBron sort of. I mean, and meet is a very loose term. He, he rolls over the hood of his car and then runs off. Right. Uh, but it made an obvious impression on LeBron. And it's the first meeting of Duncan and Tessa. And it was a cool little yeah, scene there is. where he runs up, jumps onto the, the boat. She's doing a, a guided tour through um, through Paris on the Seine. Mm-hmm. And Duncan jumps onto the boat as it's leaving the dock and makes a, a pretty pretty strong first impression with Tessa. It was a fun little scene. Well, I was going to say, I, I wrote in my notes, wow, the flirting right away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yep. I know that's kind of Duncan anyways, but still, it was like, we just want to make sure you know, Duncan is flirting with Tessa. Oh, yeah. No question about that. And I did love, I love the little exchange where she's talking about Notre Dame. You know, it's mm-hmm. complete in 1843. He's like, uh, actually. And it, that's a great line because when she says, oh, you were there. He's like, well, it was a little bit before my time. Right. <laughs> Got to throw in those, hey, I'm immortal jokes. Yeah. Overall, uh, again, a really solid, one of my favorite flashbacks we've seen so far because it Mm. was able to efficiently give us a lot of information but not feel like it's uh, just forcing information down your throat. Right. So I liked both the flashbacks in this, but I particularly liked that second one. Plus the look that Duncan had with the vest and the hat and you can, (laughs) like, had kind of a little bit of a sailor thing going on, it looked like. Yeah. They did a good job of hiding the long hair and just making it look bushy. Yeah. Yep, that too. I really, really enjoyed that. I think it's something about the Parisians. You know, they're so very, very, very French. It's, it's, uh, they, they carry automatic weapons. And Richie and Tessa are in the episode, but they're not, uh, they're not focal to it at all. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Richie's that's really, fine. Yeah. I mean, they don't have to be. Richie's really only in one scene. Um, yeah, he's the comedy relief of this episode for sure. Oh, definitely. He's just there to provide levity. I do love how excited he is to bring that, uh, that bust of Napoleon in and how (laughs) much Tessa hates it. Yeah. I I really would have liked to see the scene where they later talk about how it got busted and she swears (laughs) it's an accident. Yes. I bet they shot something and it just got cut. I bet you they did something with that. Because yeah. you know that that bust of Napoleon was like, I mean, first of all, it was hollow. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, there's no way Richie's carrying that thing around. Oh, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, Richie's fine. You know, there, he doesn't have anything to work with in this episode. But he's not mm-hmm. He's not so annoying that you can't handle yeah. it. And Tessa notices gets, the guys with guns outside yeah. the boat. So. 
Yeah, that is a actually a pretty fun fun little moment for him where he's just talking about the Parisians and how they're so French and they carry automatic weapons. Yeah, that was a great line. Um, and Tessa also doesn't have a ton to do in the episode, but I liked sort of this idea that she secretly was kind of hoping that maybe them going to Paris and getting out of the States was going to get them away from the gathering. Mm-hmm. Be- yeah, sorry, Tessa, apparently not. Yeah. And and what I like about it is you could tell that she was hoping that would be the case, but kind of knew that it wasn't, mm-hmm. was prepared for it to not be, just wanted right. it to, to be. And that's, that's the, the other thing. thing. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the other thing I liked about what she did in this episode was she was Duncan's anchor to his mm-hmm. quote-unquote mortality that, like, just to be... Just because Kyler got away doesn't mean everything Kyler's done is on Duncan for right. not stopping him. And that was a really interesting little piece of dialogue of her talking to him like, you're not all powerful. You're yes. mortal. You're not all powerful. Get over yourself. Do what you can. But you can't sit here and agonize over something that you had no way of preventing. Right. Yeah. No, that is good. Because she really, for this first season especially, she really is his moral anchor. And mm. they're, they're able to hammer that home, again, without being too heavy-handed with it. Like, there's a for reason sure. There's a reason for her to say what she does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I liked, I mean, she's perfectly prepared to just put her jacket down and stay home that night. And Duncan's like, no, right. go to have your first meeting. Like, he's, they're kind of flipping things a little bit from what they did in the States. Because she's the one really running things as far as financials. Mm-hmm. So... But yeah, I mean, again, she's not given a ton to do, but they don't, uh, they also give her, what they did give her had meat to it. And I like that. Mm -hmm. You know, coming back to a concept we've talked about before, maybe even off camera, but this is how you write a freaking relationship. Yeah. This is two people dealing with stuff and they just deal with it. You know, Mm -hmm. they have a conversation. Somebody's right. Somebody's more right or somebody's wrong. Like. Now that I think about it, like that kind of thing, I'm just like, ugh, so many stupid shows where we bounce around trying to keep people apart. And it's like relationships can be done well. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, and they're, this is they're written proof. like a real couple. Right. And uh, and reacting to things how actual couples would, especially couples that have been together for a little while. Mm-hmm. And there's no real manufactured like they sort of they tried to make a manufactured kind of conflict with Randy and Duncan mm-hmm. early on where Tessa but then you realize it's not that Tessa thinks Duncan's going to do anything with Randy it's just she doesn't like Randy so right so that that whole idea became a lot more realistic and i really appreciate mm-hmm. that it's also nice especially for when you know this takes place 20 something almost 30 years ago that Tessa isn't just relegated to a damsel in distress all the time, that she's really got agency right. and she really, mm-hmm. she has control of her life and makes important decisions. Mm-hmm. So I very much appreciate that. Yeah. Goodbye, Inspector. Not goodbye. Au revoir. It's my guess I'll be seeing you again. So final thoughts on this episode. Honestly, for me, my favorite episode so far of season one. Yeah, it was really good. And I kind of have an idea of why that is. I don't know if you noticed this in my notes or if you noticed this in the opening credits, but the teleplay for this, the actual screenplay, 
was written by David Abramovitz. And he comes back later on in this season. He writes another episode. But he then becomes the creative consultant for the series starting with season two. Ooh. And it is no uh, it is no mistake that this episode, for me, felt like the best written episode of season one. It, it has a good pace to it. It doesn't feel overly mm-hmm. cluttered. We don't get that whole feeling of like, oh, this is two stories mashed into one that really none of them, it, it felt like nothing felt half-baked. Even though, right. you know, it... it the dialogue was really well written and really snappy. I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we mentioned the, the Richie line about the automatic weapons, the banter with Duncan and Tessa on the boat was good. The banter between Duncan and LeBron is very well written. Mm-hmm. I just think Abramowitz for whatever reason, he's just a, he's a good writer in this series. And, and it's no small thing that season two is where the show really picked up and he came on as a creative consultant and sort of like almost like a script supervisor. Right. I mean, so. you could tell, so that just says he gets it. Mm-hmm. And I think it, that makes me think it's one of those things where everybody else looks like, it's one of those things where there's a little bit of magic and everybody understands it and like, okay, this is the magic. We've, yeah. we've found where the magic is. Let's keep going with this. So I don't I don't know how production of shows was if you had like a showrunner like we get today where it's sort of yeah. the showrunner becomes in a way kind of like the director of a film where there it's their vision that really kind of drives the show and I feel like Abramovitz became that with the producers William William Davis and Bill Panzer mm-hmm. and the three of them sort of became the creative force behind the show Davis and Panzer were there all along but Abramovitz coming along really helped kind of punch up the script because he didn't write this story, but he wrote the teleplay. So that that's where right. the dialogue gets more polished and all of that. Mm-hmm. And we'll see him again do one more episode later on. I don't know how many others he kind of consulted on, but when he became creative consultant, it's nice to have that unified voice. And I think that helps sure. a lot. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I really liked him. Um, the other thing I did want to talk about was Absinthe plays a, a prominent role <laughs> in the episode. Um, yeah, it's it interesting to me because... It made an impression on me when I saw this because at the time this came out, absinthe was illegal in the mm-hmm. States and in Europe. You couldn't buy it because right. there was a whole propaganda campaign around it that it made you hallucinate and, and whatnot, being that it was somewhat derived from wormwood. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that's ever proven any of that. It's no worse than right. any other spirit, which is why you can get it freely mm-hmm. now. You can buy it wherever. But... I always I think it's funny now when I look back at this episode and he's buying the absinthe and it's this cloudy liquid because that's not how you buy it. Mm. When you buy absinthe, it's a uh, either clear or green liquid, but that cloudiness comes from the way it's prepared, which is to dilute the spirit with water and sugar. And there's a whole mm. kind of ritual around it. You You have a specific slotted spoon that fits over the cup. You put a cube of sugar on it. You drip water over that. That that dissolves the sugar and puts that into the absinthe, and that creates the cloudiness because some things come out of suspension and all of that. But sure, you know, in order to make it actually look like what people would have assumed absinthe looks like, they had to show it in that form when he bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, it would have been really boring to watch him sit there and drip water on it before he could drink it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> 
but I did like I did like that. You know, obviously it doesn't carry the same weight now to have that as a major plot point, and it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't work as a way to track him because you can just buy it anywhere now. But it was cool at the time, right? Yeah, I, th- I was also impressed that they didn't push it having much of an effect on him. Like right. you know, they didn't. Everybody like all. Oh, a lot of the stories and stuff you see on film is all about how wild and crazy you get after drinking it. And I was impressed that they didn't do that. I was like, that's no, just a special drink. Yeah. They mention it being it. illegal and the Baron mm-hmm. does mention it, you know, madness and death are not things I want to right. deal with. That's it. I like that. That's mm-hmm. showing restraint. That again, comes back to that, mm-hmm. that not, you know, nice tight writing for it. Right. Um, it just was a, an expensive taste that he had. Mm hmm. Uh, two other things I have to I have to mention these two tropes. One was the the scream sound when Duncan hears uh, just before he runs over to the cafe in the beginning of the episode. Okay. Uh, that scream is I believe from the movie Psycho, but it's one of those. It's like the Wilhelm scream. It's a stock okay. thing that you hear everywhere. And sure. But you, you, once you hear it, it's like the Wilhelm scream. You can't unhear it. You, you notice it right. everywhere. The other uh-huh. thing was even Duncan McCloud is not immune to the trope of a baguette sticking out of a bag of groceries. <laughs> that was funny. I defy you to find any television show or movie that depicts somebody carrying a paper bag full of groceries. There will be a loaf of bread sticking out of there. Right. I promise you. It even happened in the movie Titan AE. An animated movie did it. <laughs> and it's another That's one of those hilarious. things that once you notice, you never unsee it. You will yeah. catch it in everything now. Mm-hmm. And it's the one thing not covered at all. Yeah. It's always an uncovered stick of like French bread or a baguette or some <laughs> sort of loaf of bread sticking out of the top of the bas- of the bag. Uh-huh. So I, I, I have to mention it every time I see it. Yeah. The one thing I noticed too was uh, when Duncan visit LeBron in the hospital is like, good lord, that's a small room. <laughs> yeah, a tiny room, which does not surprise me if it's you know a French town and they're in an old building, which is entirely mm-hmm. possible. Like it's like that makes sense, but still, that room was tiny. It really was. And why was LeBron not wearing a shirt? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Plus, the he had same a green shirt he wore the entire episode, no matter what day it was. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that. Well, what was funny is that he's in that hospital bed, and the blanket that he had was almost the same color as his skin. So at first, mm-hmm. I was like, "Why is he laying in the bed naked, with just like his bits <laughs> covered?" And I realized, "Oh no, it's a brown blanket." He just—it's like a he's tan. pasty. Yeah. But no, this was like I, like I said, my favorite episode of season one so far. Mm-hmm. Um, it just yeah. really well written. The dialogue is snappy. Nothing feels. Like it, nothing drags, nothing feels out of place. Um, I just, I really liked it. This, this is a solid A grade for me. For sure. It was super solid. Now, next week is another good one. Uh, it's for Tomorrow We Die. And it has a pretty fun special guest, which is Roland Gift from The Fine Young Cannibals. Comes in as the immortal Xavier St. Cloud. <laughs> So I'm looking forward to this one. This is another one of those episodes that played a lot on repeat, and I remember it. Right. Definitely remember him being on that. Oh, yeah. It'll be fun to watch. So, yep, come on back next week for For Tomorrow We Die. And until then, I am Travis. And I'm Audie. 
and there could be only one. 103? Sure. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>